Before we turn over to our conversation with Robbie Koenig, I just want to set the stage a little bit. I imagine, and Kabir, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm imagining like a 13-year-old Kabir in his house in Miami. You're holding like a an encode maybe, and you're swinging it around the house. Your parents are supportive, but also kind of concerned that you might knock over a vase or or scrape a tapestry or something on the wall. And uh, probably some good snacks on the countertop. Maybe you just hit some of those and you're, you're hitting, uh, I always imagine you as a child with the Sex Pistols shirt on and you're in the, you go to the living room and you've got, at that was it ATP Tennis? What was it, the channel then? Yeah, so Tennis Channel didn't exist then, but I don't remember what it was called, but basically the equivalent of Tennis TV today, uh -huh. ATP rolled out sometime between 2005 and 2006. And Robbie Koenig and Jason Goodall were the main commentators. And, and since then, for people who like get their tennis content and, and watch matches throughout the year beyond the grand beyond the grand slams, those are sort of the two that they've they've always they've really established themselves, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Not only grand slams but also the Masters 1000s. All right. So fast forward to a couple weeks back when Kabir reaches out to uh, the commentator Robbie Koenig, and amazingly, he was great enough to hop on with us. It was. An amazing experience for us. His enthusiasm and clear passion and love for what he does emanated throughout the interview, and we hope you enjoy. Yeah, I've been listening to him break down matches for about 15 years. Brilliant analysis, great speaker, amazing banter, just an absolute legend. Yeah, loves the banter, loves the banter. Again, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, this is the Cheeky Volley podcast. All of us know each other through tennis, uh, hardcore tennis fans, and also. Uh, most of us played at the college level in the U.S. Your commentary is inspiring and uh, the language is colorful and really unique. So again, we appreciate you coming on. We really appreciate you giving us about, you know, 15 minutes or so. And we just want to talk about Medvedev. Um, I think that he is the one young uh, of these younger guys. He's the one guy that's really been able to kind of make the jump to reach Grand Slam finals. And I think that it feels like he is taken as like seriously by all the players in a way that maybe some of the other younger guys aren't at that like late stage of tournaments. And we just wanted to hear you kind of comment on what is it about his game that that allows him to do that? Um, I think he, the guy's so qualified from the neck up, man. He's first of all, he's a hell of a smart individual. Um, this was a guy who was chosen to go to a special school for physics and mathematics in Russia. So straight away, you know, the IQ is there, but then he matches it with the tennis IQ. Um, he knows what needs to be done on the tennis court. Uh, he was he was struggling, you know, with the physical side of his game. And Gilles Savaro, since he's had Gilles on board, he's really up that component. So his ability to stay out there for five hours, I think, has been one of his greatest assets. Then you combine that with the, the shot making and everything else. The thing is, you know, hitting the ball up and down the court, Anybody can do that, but can you do it for five hours when you're running side to side? And that's what he's been able to marry with the fantastic hand-eye coordination that he has. Um, I think that comeback, even though he lost the US Open to Nadal 2019, that's in shockwaves around the, you know, the, the locker room because he had a couple of tough matches before that. Uh, he got into it with the New York crowd. And the one thing I love about him is he's got what I call an excuse that I don't know if this is allowed on the podcast, but he's got a fuck you mentality. Allowed, <laughs> allowed. And you need it, man. You need it to take down the very best people in the world. He will take on New Yorkers. How many How many of us would take on New Yorkers? Not one of them, but 10,000 of them. That's his mentality. That's the kind of inner belief he has. 
and it takes a lot to rattle his cage. Um, and he will not play second fiddle to the person on the other side of the court. Um, I thought the match he played against Djokovic in ATP Cup last year was one of the best matches I ever saw. It was like a, an entire match was like a, a highlights reel. So not only does he have the shots where he can go to, he's got the patience, he, he's got the understanding of the game, and then perhaps the most important part, the physical component. So, so Alex, I think those are, are the criteria that's so important. Plus, he's got the experience now. I mean, the, you know, the fact that he played so well in that summer, but now he, he's kind of cemented that. Uh, 20 matches that he's won at the moment, 12 against top 10 opposition. I mean, when you're drumming top 10 opposition the way he is, tell you what, I'm surprised his head can fit through the door when he walks in the locker room. <laughs> That's how the confidence must be. I can't imagine what it's like to have that kind of confidence. I mean, we know what it's like to have a, one or two good wins at club level and we're walking taller, right? So to be where he is right now, I think he's perfectly set up to win his first major. And so why, like, what is the difference in terms of intangibles between someone like him and Rublev or him and Zverev or him and Shapovalov? Or Sitsipas. Or Tsitsipas. Like, what is the, because clearly there's something like, you know, if it's just based on skills or talent, it's like, it, there's obviously something that is, is different there. Killer instinct. Yeah. yeah, he's got the belief. He's got that belief in the very important moments. Training is like the cake. In any honest accounting, training is like the cake. But icing is like the belief. And sometimes that thin smear of frosting makes all the difference. <laughs> Love it. And that's, and that's what he's got that the other guys don't have. In those unbelievably difficult moments, those tight moments, he's able to produce a decent quality of tennis that can, you know, it can beat a lot of players. And I think, I think one of the biggest mistakes people make is that the very best players always raise their level. It's one of the misnomers. That happens maybe 10, 15% of the time. What actually happens is the lesser ranked player, it's his level that ends up dropping off. The Djokovic's, the Nadal's, they still play at 8 out of 10, but they're going to say, okay, they're going to say, Kabir, play for 8 out of 10 for five hours. Guys can't do it. Sitsipas was playing at a 7 out of 10, suddenly played for 8 out of 10, wins the third set against Rafa. But guess what? For the next three sets, he keeps playing at an eight, eight and a half out of 10. Rafa couldn't meet him. But every now and then when the very best guys play each other, we see them both raise their games to the nine out of 10. So the mere mortals, their level drops off. They can't live with the best guys. They start doing stupid things. They start changing things that they, that they were doing to get them into a position where they were ready to beat the guy. But then suddenly they start thinking about winning, think about the guy on the other side of the court, decision-making goes to shit. They start trying to hit four hands down the line that they haven't hit to get to that point. You know, they've been very disciplined in this decision-making. And that's why I say, guys, the only thing that matters in sport is how you play under pressure. Everybody's good to two or three or four, or, but against the best, you've got to be able to handle it under pressure. Or in practice. Maybe some of us are just good in practice. <laughs> yes, I was one of those guys. Never good. Never good, man. But what about, uh, is there is there like a model though? Like, or, okay, given that we say he's unique, there's like, Right now on the tour, there's not that many players that play like him. He's kind of this counter puncher, but he's also his the serve is really effective. Who is there anyone looking back that he reminds you of? You know, he reminds me of is the guy on the other side of the net that he's going to face in the finals. Really? I think he's just a, you know, he's not as technically sound as him. But if you have a look at the guy's game, what does he do? There's not there's not that many spectacular winners like a Roger. 
it's the un, it, it's the forced error count that when you watch matches that have Djokovic and Medvedev in, are always a little higher than uh, the average of the top guys. That's because their their depth is suffocating. The ability to maintain length is ridiculous. Uh, you couple that with how well they choose their shots. They're very similar there. Um, their movement is excellent. Their patience is excellent. Uh, I think, you know, their serves aren't the best serves, but they're very, very good serves. So, yeah, I see a lot of similarities. And I think that's why Djokovic struggles when he plays against them. He's playing, you know, somebody who is almost a clone of himself. And if... if, uh, if Sorry, you got this. Sorry, uh, Robbie. I was just gonna say. So, if we if we look back at uh, Novak's career, sort of the 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 switch that sort of happened seemed to sort of coincide with him uh, going off gluten uh, in yeah. like 2010. So you must have been sort of kind of been aware of Medvedev um, as he was making it sort of his way up the ranks. Do you think that there was like a, a switch moment for him, or sort of was it a, was it a build up? Sort of you mentioned the coach uh, Gilles Servara. So what what do you think was that uh, switch? There was a, it's a great question. There absolutely was a switch. It happened in 2017 in the summer when uh, Gilles had flown over from France um, to be in, in DC with him. And he lost early in uh, DC. And then they flew up to, to play the Masters 1000 in Canada. He lost early there. I'd have to go back and see who it was that he lost to. And they drove in the car and they were driving back to Cincinnati from Canada. And that, they weren't driving all the way. They were dropping the, the car off at the airport. It might have even been in Buffalo at the border of New York and Canada. And on that drive, uh, they were stuck in the car for a couple of hours together. Um, Gilles just laid it out to him. He said, you know, you, you're not professional. You're spending way too many evenings playing video games till late in the morning. And they ended up having a ding dong in the car. But of course, Medvedev had nowhere to go, right? He was stuck in the car with Gilles. <laughs> laid it back at him. Said, you're wasting your talent. I'm not going to be here unless you pull yourself towards yourself and completely commit to this sport because I believe in you. I believe you can be one of the best. Um, and and Danny was happy making good money, you know, starting to make good money, just broken in the top 100. Um, and, you know, there was silence in the car after you've had the ding dong. Um and I guess Danny was thinking about everything that was being said and uh, dropped the car off at the airport. And he says to Gilles, okay, from now on, whatever you tell me to do, I'm all in. And that was the tipping point for Medvedev. Um, and it didn't happen straight away. It was only the next summer where the ranking and the results started to move in the right direction. But, you know, 18 months down the line, he has the most incredible summer of tennis back in 2019. So, yeah. Um, and you know when you have an incident like we saw at this year's US Open, uh, at this year's Oz Open, where Gilles walked out in his match against Krajinovic, there's not many relationships in tennis where a coach would be able to do that and get away with it. But um, you know they're a small unit. There's, there's more often than once, more often than not, it's just uh, Gilles who travels with him. Gilles does his fitness. He actually comes from a physical training background. As uh, Gilles, very good player, but uh, he's excellent at strength and conditioning. So he can hit balls, he can do all the fitness, he can do all the stretching. Um, you know, tight unit, just Daria and, and Gilles are here, just the two of them, uh, Medvedev's wife. Um, but it's a really cool story. That's amazing. It's, if we think about the final and the matchup, I think it's a really interesting point you mentioned about the similarities between their games. Obviously, this would be the eighth time they played. How important will it be for either of them 
to play the net game and come in and finish points early to win? You know what? I think that's where uh, Kabir, where Djokovic has the biggest advantage. It's still very much a hole in Medvedev's game. He came in a couple of times when things got a bit tight in that third set yesterday. Um, and he really fluffed his lines. He fluffed his lines badly uh, against Sitsipas. But Novak, I don't think Novak gets enough credit for how well he volleys. Technically, he is so sound. Um, and I think he uses yes he uses athleticism so well he's got great vision i always remember a story that his very first coach uh, elena jencic um tells in one of the documentaries that i watched about novak and it said he was always a great volleyer even from a young kid he used to love coming in and had, had excellent hands and she always thought he was going to be a very good volleyer and um you know when novak comes in i think um i think he's outstanding so for me that could be it could be the, the definitive criteria that defines the outcome of the of the match. You know, is Novak going to be brave enough to say, hey, can you pass me Danny? And similarly, when Danny's got him on the ropes, is he going to be able to finish him off at the net? Because we, we know both these guys, their ability to get back and restart the point because of their athleticism is so amazing that, um, you know, more often than not, it just becomes a, a war of attrition. How do you think the, um, this, what do you think the sort of the surface is going to play into it? Because it's, it's been kind of weird throughout the tournament, because if we go back to like 17, 18, the surface just became a lot quicker and Roger did great. And then sort of they changed the ball and then they changed the surface. It became much slower. Novak did a lot better those years. And then this year it's, it's been kind of up and down sort of throughout the week. It seems during the day, it's much faster. Um, sort of how, how is the surface playing now? And sort of how do you think that's going to impact the result? And then please give us your uh, prediction. Yeah, I think, um, I think the surface is playing the quickest it's ever played. Um, and, you know, the very best players in the world are just, I think Novak's playing his best tennis. He won't mind it. He can play well on any surface, any hard court surface. I think it'll definitely help Danny uh, just perhaps if, if Novak is the favorite, I think it'll help narrow that, that favoritism that, that Novak might have just because of the way he executes the shots, you know, so flat, the court surface will receive those, those flat ground strokes really well. Um, so, yeah, I think that that will definitely help Medvedev somewhat. In fact, uh, you guys, I don't know if you know this or not, but um, the company that lays down the courts here is um, Javier Sanchez's company. Green set, yeah. So, so they do all the courts, and uh, you know the request, I think, was to make the courts a little bit quicker this year because historically they have been pretty slow, and and I think it's a it's a great move from the tournament because look, guys, the technology in the sport so much favors the baseliners with the rackets. Uh, you know, they're able to swing those things through the air so quickly now. The string technology has been a game changer for the baseliners. They're able to get that ball up and down so quickly with spin. Um, and then, of course, the, the hard courts have been so slow for so long that that's the, the third criteria, the one that you can really control these days, is again in favor of the baseliners. And the fact that they've sped things up, at least if you've got a different skill set, if you have the ability to volley and finish points over the net, you should be rewarded for it. Um, and I think that's what the tournament's done. So big props to, to the AO for that. You know what, guys? Um, I always believe uh, you've got to stick with the girl that you brought to the dance. And I bought Medvedev at the beginning of the fortnight. <laughs> Um, so yeah, my, my money's, uh, would be on, on Medvedev to, to get the upset. I think having presented my case to you boys, given how well Daniel's playing, 
you know, 20 match win streak, 12 top 10 wins. I just think he might be right. It's it's not a knock on Novak. I think he might just play better than Novak. Novak's not going to play badly of that. You can be absolutely certain. Um, Five sets? But for some reason, sorry, Cabs, I just think that it's, it's going to be him this year. I don't know why. I mean, I watched Novak from behind the court the other night. I was sitting in the bunker and it was incredible tennis that he was playing. You can't believe it until you watch him live how much dynamic movement he has at the end of his range. There were a couple of times there when uh, Karatsev hit a good shot and I just thought, you know, he's out wide just four and he's going to be lucky if he can carve around the side of the ball and chip it back into play. And not only does he get there, but he just pounds the bloody thing. So, yeah, but as we know, boys, matchups is a it's a fascinating thing in sport. You can be unbelievable against one guy, but when you play another guy, he you know, brings the level of your game down and he frustrates you and and I think Medvedev is going to do that to Djokovic. You know, as a commentator, I've always been a neutral. And, and in a match like this, again, I'll, I'll be a neutral. I don't care who wins. Uh, I just hope they both play their best tennis, you know, at the same time. And then, you know, us guys as fans, I'm a tennis fan too, right? Just like everybody else. Uh, you know, we we stand in front of a, the TV, we sit in front of the couch and we go, what the hell was that? That's what I, that's what I live for. <laughs> I'm so hyped about this final. Yeah, me too. I haven't been yeah. as hyped for a final in a while, and especially with a young guy involved in it, someone new, new face, relatively new face for finals. So, um, yeah, hopefully they both bring it at the same time. Five will be the beneficiaries of that. Eh? Robbie, and, um, you got this time. Okay. Go for it. Um, Robbie, so Novak's copped a lot of criticism, particularly this tournament, uh, with regards to the injury. And yeah. I was wondering your thoughts on that as the year plays out and also his stretch into ultimately the, the Grand Slam record. How do you think yeah. that sort of criticism affects him? How does he deal with it? Does it matter at all to him? No, I don't think it matters at all. He's very much as a man. Uh, this guy's been around way too long. It's not his first rodeo, Tom. Uh, so he's, you know what's, even be, even compounded with the Adria tour and with other stuff, you don't think it phases him at all? No, it doesn't, Alex. He is. Uh, all I can say is that to achieve what he has done in this era, with the two greatest other players around, and you can't be normal. You can't be perfect. I don't think you can. I think it has to. There's a lovely quote by Dr. Zeus. You have to be odd to be number one. <laughs> and. And you know what? That is exactly where uh, Djokovic fits in. He has got such a steely resolve. And I love the fact that he puts it out there. He wants everybody to know that I want to be the best. I want to have the most majors. Uh, I want to win the most Masters 1000s. I want to have the most weeks at number one. And I like that about him. I, I like the fact he's different to Roger. I like the fact he's different to Rafa. Um, and... Yeah, I just think over the years, he's had to deal with so much adversity. You know, way back in 2008, Tom, most tennis fans had picked their sides. You were either a Roger fan or you were a Rafa fan. Yep. And and those two groups were cool with it, right? It's like, hey, our guy's in the finals every week. Sweet ass, sweet ass, knock you. Hey, okay, your guy can win this week. My guy wins this week. That's all good, man. We respect one another. And suddenly you get this guy comes in and just wedges a gap between, you know, the two sets of fans um, and obviously taking a lot of majors away from both of them. 
Uh, and I think over the years for social media, um, the, the Federer fans and the Rafa fans have not enjoyed it one little bit. And I think it's been a little bit of an agenda against him. And I think it's manifested itself into what we see now, Tom. And it's and maybe been fueled him, it. maybe fuels him a little bit. Totally, totally, Alex. I think the guy is just more determined than ever to to beat those guys and break their records. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, he's such a complete player. He can play so well on so many different surfaces. So, um, yeah, there's no ways it was a tear that much. We know because if it was a tear in his stomach. Just getting back to your original question, he he would not have been able to play. And I think that self-diagnosis was just incorrect after his after his match against Taylor Fritz because I did that match. So he's obviously feeling a lot of discomfort, and who knows whether he's just throwing a bit of petrol on the fire there. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. I love it. I tell you what, you know, I'm uh, I love the name of your podcast, by the way, uh, and I'm a cheeky bugger as well. <laughs> I had the whole world against me. Uh, I, I'd be inclined to do some stuff like that just to throw it out there create a couple of stories just to yeah. piss everybody off and then come back and play well the next day and everybody's like ah oh, you're such a faker it's like come on dude I'm, I'm playing with your guys minds i'm living rent free inside your head robbie with uh, the last question and then and then uh we know you have a, a schedule if i can squeeze in one more so okay um i think one thing that this is this is more about commentating is you're, you have a very like uh, unique use of language. Like I was listening to the recent breakdown you did of Nival, uh, Nadal's um, uh, net, game. Net, net play. And you were talking, you said like he, he'll sneak up on you like a Prius. Um, <laughs> where, where, where do you get, like, like how do you, where does, where does the language come from? Is it, is it just like, like is it, it just comes off the top or, or, or how, do you, how do you come up with these kind of like colorful uh, ways to comment, yeah. commentate on yeah, tennis? Thanks. I appreciate the fact that you, you enjoy that and appreciate it. Um, I tell you how it all started, Alex. Is you know, sports is repetitive, tennis is repetitive. So I found myself um, in my very early days of commentating when I was describing great shots, and of course, in a match you can have several of them. Mm-hmm. And it was always I was using the same adjectives, and I realized when we used to listen back to the highlights and it becomes quite repetitive. Oh, it's an amazing shot. Oh, it's an amazing shot. Oh, that's unbelievable. Big forehand. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, the viewers at home can see that. So it started to occur to me, like, how can I initially improve my language and have the ability to describe the same thing, let's call it a great shot, 20, 30, 50 different ways. Because in my early days of doing ATP, um, working for ATP Media and doing the World Feed, we were doing insane amounts of tennis. There were only three commentators in those early days. You know, we were doing 10 hours on air, uh, you know, on, off, on, off, two sets on, one set off. So it was just the best uh, ground to hone my skills. Um, and then you start reading. I enjoy reading a lot of stuff, listening to other sports. And I would hear a basketball guy commentating and he'd say something like in your life have you ever seen anything like that? <laughs> you know which is for me as the guy watching basketball wow what a great way of describing that michael jordan shot so okay that could actually fit quite well in tennis so actually make a note of stuff mm-hmm. um, and i started making a list of how i can use phrases or take a phrase that i've read and and apply it in a tennis 
um, environment to, to sound good. But the key is, is to not make it sound scripted. And again, that's the skill you use. You don't want to crowbar in there. The first time you find something really cool, you think, oh, I need to use this. This sounds so damn good. And then it's not appropriate. You just crowbar in there, sounds shit. And you think, oh, why did I do that, man? Where's the patience? Save it, save it, save it, you know. And Robbie, that's you're, um... I've got a couple, of, and and I'm saving them for you know precisely the right player, the right moment to use them. And you had to me, wait for the Tesla to come out to use the Prius comment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, um, but the Tesla one, I, uh, where did I, I mean, the, the Prius one I heard somewhere, can't remember now, you know, he stuck up on him like a Prius. And uh, I just thought that's exactly what guys do, right? When they sneak into the net, Nadal does it perfectly. He hits a good shot, waits, 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 before you know it, he's on top of the net. And I, I so, drove a Prius for the first time today. The thing is so quiet. So I was, I, that's why I was thinking about it. <laughs> I couldn't tell it was on. It was my friend's car and I kept turning on. I was like, is this on? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Good spot. Robbie, where did um where did mongoose on amphetamines come from? <laughs> um, it was something ridiculous. It was like something a wildlife show that I was watching. <laughs> obviously, coming from South Africa, there's there's people that do a lot of uh, wildlife videos. And I think I heard it on on one of those where a guy was saying, "Check out this mongoose. He looks like a like he's like a mongoose on amphetamines." And he was taking down a cobra or something. And I thought. <laughs> Because uh, obviously, you know, in Africa, the mongoose is known for its reflexes and it, they, they they prey on snakes. So mm. this guy was taking on a king cobra and he wasn't even looking around. He was like, you know, like this. And the cobra was making a couple of darts at him and he was just going like this. Then suddenly he went for the cobra and took him down. And, and this guy was talking about this mongoose must be on amphetamines. And I thought, hey, how can we get that into tennis, man? <laughs> <laughs> you have to go for the right, right rally. You know, rat a tat tat back and forward. Um, so, yeah, it was, uh, you know, one of those ones I kept and I thought, okay, when am I going to use it? And, and then obviously it was a Federer match that I kind of saved it for, but it's not often that you get a rally like it where you get two guys at net and it's not just one reflex volley, but it's, it's a couple. Um, and the crowd goes nuts and then it, it kind of helps you get your, get your line in there. Hopefully you don't, you don't mess it up when you deliver it because <laughs> then all the impacts lost <laughs> so the execution was on point always thanks thanks kev yeah so um, i've been very blessed i love what i do um you know it was such a chance meeting with jason goodall uh on the corner of uh of, of one of the streets in uh, right near the all england club where jason he was coming back from southfield's tube station i was going to it and we hadn't seen each other in years corner of um Wimbledon Park Road. He's like, hey, Robbie, what are you doing? And I said, I'm doing a bit of coaching this year. I was coaching Mahesh Bhupati and Wesley Moody. And I said, oh, what are you doing, Jason? He goes, I've just started working for ATP Media. They've got the world feed going. And he's like, oh, is that something you'd ever get in, uh, be interested in commentating? Because John Barrett is retiring at the end of the year. You know, he's turning 80 and he's not going to be doing it anymore. And this was at the start of the year. This was in February. And I said, no, not really. I'm enjoying the coaching gig. And then uh, Wesley dumped me in July after Wimbledon. And then I realized how fickle, you know, coaching could be, you know, a couple of months, you're hot next month, you're not. And, you know, there's no guarantee. And then um, I actually followed up on, on what Jason suggested. I'd done a couple of matches. I had some free time in Indian Wells in Miami and I went up to the booth, did some stuff there. And then after Wimbledon, I did some more stuff in the summer. 
so that's basically how I got into it. And then Cincinnati, the head of production from ATP Media, um, Steve Plaster, said, hey, Rob, we, we love your work. Do you want to come come work for us next year? We literally sat down and negotiated my salary right there. <laughs> and um, yeah, the rest has uh, been an absolute blessing. I, I absolutely love what I do. I haven't worked a day in my life, boys. I really haven't. And especially to be you know involved in the sport uh, in this generation of players, when we've got Roger Rafa, you know, we've had Andy been, you know, played against Andy when he was a 15 year old. So that's been a special journey for me to follow and watch his. So to be commentating, being front and center, watching these guys, seeing them around the locker rooms. It's been so cool, man. I can't tell you how much I count my blessings every day. And I absolutely mean it. I was walking back yesterday evening with Brad Stein, my coach is Tommy Paul. And I said, I mean, how cool, how cool is it what we do? How lucky are we to do what we do? And he's like, yeah, you know, I appreciate my job as well, eh, Robbie. So um, don't think for one second I take it for granted, eh, guys? Um, yeah, yeah, and I, I just wanted to say that sort of Kabir and Alex grew up in, in the States, so they got less of the international coverage. But for me, uh, you and Jason's commentary, especially in the Master Series events, I used to, I grew up in Pakistan, and um, that definitely made those tournaments a lot more enjoyable for me and sort of was one of the main reasons why sort of I, I was watching even the sort of the events outside the grand slam so so yeah just wanted to no thanks you know. yeah and it's like a doubles team you know when you commentate yeah. with somebody that you feel really comfortable with you're on the same wavelength especially with somebody like jason you know um obviously the tennis knowledge is one thing but sometimes matches are rubbish and you, you have to bring in other stuff and they'll you know tell jokes or just same wavelength we'll both love our music or whatever it might be um you know he's, he's spent a number of years living in Africa. So you'll have a couple of things to say about me being, you know, from Africa and some of the jokes and some of the, the banter that we'll have. It's it's great. And I think it helps make a broadcast better because the, you know, you you guys are you know what it's like. It's boring sometimes. The match is not great. You're talking about forehands and backhands all day long. You have to add a bit of color, I think. I think it's certainly in the entertainment business and that's what I try and do, entertain with Without making too much about me, it's more about those guys down there. But still being able to have a laugh with you guys. Uh, when you tell me it's a, it's a funny line, you see me, people come up to me and say, hey, it's so funny. I'm like, awesome, man. I'm glad I made your viewing experience a better one. Yeah, well, I think all of us, we've all been listening to commentary for well over a decade now. But yeah. In years. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm getting old, man. Oh, it's I'm, almost, I'm almost a journeyman, as uh, Johnny Mack would say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway boys been fantastic catching up uh, i really appreciate you having me on the show and we'll have to do it again man we'll have to do it again keep working on that backhand slice Kabir. <laughs> <laughs> all right take Alex, care and, and uh, have you a great day, day. thanks so much Bobby. Bye -bye. thanks and let's do it again sometime soon feel, yeah, feel free to reach out okay. thank you thanks guys thanks, thanks again take care stay well thanks, eh thanks Robbie. bye now bye now